6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Dr. Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Dr. Missler continues his teaching on the book of 1 Kings, chapters 12 through 14. When Rehoboam was come to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah with, with the tribe of Benjamin, a hundred and fourscore thousand chosen men which were warriors to fight against the house of Israel to bring the kingdom again to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. So he is going to go uh, try to fix all this with force. He's got 180,000 soldiers to, 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 who are going to fight their brothers in the ten tribes to the north. So things look like they're heading for big trouble, but God still has his hand on this. The word of the Lord came to Shimeah, the man of God. He's a prophet. You're going to notice all through the Chronicles here, of uh, the, the books of Kings and Chronicles, that uh, you're going to find two kinds of leaders, the kings, the rulers, and the prophets, that not always, but generally are primarily speaking to the kings. And the prophets were feared, even by the kings that didn't agree with them. They were, their, their, their authority was characterized by miracles and all kinds of strange goings on, but they were, they were recognized as the word of God on the one hand, and yet the kings didn't listen. They heard, but they didn't do. It didn't drive them to commitment, which is what it was all about. But anyway, the, so Shemi is one of the first of these that we're going to encounter here in this chapter. The man of God saying, speak unto Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and unto all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and the remnant of the people, saying, Thus saith the Lord. There's that identity phrase. This is not just an opinion now. They are speaking on behalf of the creator of the universe. Thus saith the Lord, ye shall not go up nor fight against your brethren, the children of Israel. Return every man to his house, for this thing is from me. They hearkened therefore unto the word of the Lord and returned to depart according to the word of the Lord. Give them credit. Uh, Rehoboam saluted and says, yes, sir, and they went home. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in Mount Ephraim and dwelt therein and went out from thence and built Penuel. Now see, they, Shechem is where we had all this going on, but that's in the area of Ephraim. And, uh, it's in, it's technically in the northern kingdom. So the northern kingdom seceding, uh, obviously this is going to end up being northern kingdom territory. Uh, Jeroboam naturally takes Shechem to be his, his, uh, center. Because Jerusalem is still the, the going to be, obviously, uh, all the kings of Judah ruled from Jerusalem. We're going to have three different capitals in the north, as you'll see. Because later on, we're going to, he's going to build Samaria, and we're also going to run into Terza. We, they're all within a few miles, all within seven miles of each other. And uh, so these three, Shechem, Samaria, and Terza will be the three capitals of the northern kingdom at various times. But you'll notice in this last verse, he also fortifies Peniel, and that's presumably to give him some protection from the uh, east and from the southeast, from, from other tribes, and of course also from, from the uh, tribe of Judah. So Jeroboam said in his heart, Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. He's worried. See, he's not trusting the Lord here. He's starting to use his, you know, rely on his own counsel, so to speak. But he recognizes that since Jerusalem is the capital of the southern uh, tribes, and that's where the temple is, and that's where the worship is, he's got a problem. 
Because people, even though they may be loyal to him politically, they'll be going down there to worship, and he sees that as a threat to his rule. He's got to contrive some way to wean the people off the temple and, and the mosaic, mosaic Judaism, in effect. He says to himself, If these people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of the people turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam, the king of Judah. And they shall kill me and go again to Rehoboam, the king of Judah. So that's, that's the predicament as he perceives it. And uh, uh, it's, it, it's, uh, it's uh, again, uh, it, it's, it, it seems logical, and yet it is um, a major sin. He was divinely chosen by God, and he was given promises that his dynasty would continue and prosper if he obeyed the Lord. So rather than somehow trust the Lord, he he uh, builds a whole counter um, approach that's going to not only destroy him, but it's going to cast the seeds for uh, uh, a handful of dynasties following. Twenty kings are going to rule in the northern kingdom, and not one of them is going to turn to the Lord. All, all because of the, of the seeds he's planting in here. Instead of one stable dynasty, they're going to have several of these. This is the, you can look at this, these verses right here as Jeroboam's first act of infidelity to Jehovah. Okay. So he has a heart of unbelief is really what we're seeing here. And when you have a heart of unbelief, you have something else that accompanies it. And that's fear of your personal safety. If you're trusting the Lord, you have no fear for your personal safety. You don't have to. You don't have to. He's in charge. But see, he doesn't trust the Lord and, and associate right with that, right up front. They're going to kill me and they're going to turn again and so forth. So whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold and said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Now it's interesting. There, Scholars have different views of this. Some scholars, um, um, Albright and others, say that he was really just trying to create a substitute way of worshiping Jehovah. I don't buy that for reasons you'll see coming, but I want to share it because there are some scholars that sort of give him the benefit of doubt in a sense. I don't think so at all. I think these are throwbacks to the golden calf of Egypt. They're not, uh, it's just that simple. He is, he is bringing them to idolatry. In fact, he makes two of these. He's going to put one in the south part of his kingdom and up the north. He puts one in Bethel, which is close to the southern border of the northern kingdom. It's north of Jerusalem, but it's the southern part of their kingdom. And the other one uh, they put in Dan. And this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one, even unto Dan. Now, in the map that we looked at previously, Dan is way up in the north. It's, it, it's, it almost becomes symptomatic or idiomatic of the, of the north. And Bethel is the southern part of the northern kingdom. It's just north of the northern border of Judah. And those are the two worship centers. And uh, they become infamous for that very reason. Now, it's kind of interesting, just to look ahead a little bit, the tribe of Dan is the tribe through which idolatry first enters the land. But so is Bethel. Bethel is in Ephraim. It's interesting, when you get to the book of Revelation, you're going to discover that when the twelve tribes are there detailed in chapter 7, there's a tribe missing. The tribe of Dan doesn't appear. And there's much speculation about why and so forth. Part of the reason has to do with the fact that Dan was identified with the entrance of idolatry into the land. But what you'll also notice that many scholars miss is you don't find Ephraim either. It's there. It speaks of Manasseh 
and the house of Joseph. Well, if you take Manasseh from Joseph, what do you got left? Ephraim. So the Holy Spirit put Ephraim there, but it didn't use his name. In fact, if you study the scripture, there's 20 times the 12 tribes are listed in the scripture. You'll notice every time they are, the tribe of Dan gets the back of the hand in subtle ways, the way the text is structured. There are, there are, there are, are genealogies where each tribe has gone through the genealogy. When you get to Dan, Dan and others, they're not detailed. They're just little editorial things. If you watch, you get sense to. The Holy Spirit singled them out. And uh, so, but let's move on. Uh, verse 31. And he made a house of high places and made priests of the lowest of the people, which were not the sons of Levi. And that's a very key uh, verse. He not only made idolatrous worship places on high hills, on the high places that was against, by that way, that was specifically prohibited in the Torah for this very reason, because those high places are associated with, with the Canaanite uh, idolatry. But he made priests of the common people. See, there's a total departure here from the instruction that God gave through the Torah, because the, they, were, they were supposed to be only the sons of Levi. And we're going to what you're going to discover when you get to Chronicles makes it even clearer. If you were a Levite, what did you do? You moved. You didn't hang around in this region. You got out of there because you were not politically correct anymore. So the Levites migrate to the south, as do all those who want to be faithful to temple worship under the Torah. So people from all the different tribes that were faithful migrated south. The text doesn't say this, but you can easily, reasonably infer that if you were in the south and just had it to had it to hear, uh, uh, as far as the temple's concerned, you didn't you didn't relate to all of that. You wanted to go idol worship. Where would you move? Up north, where it's politically encouraged. You follow me? So this, these two administrations cause a commingling of the tribes. The faithful go north. The uh, excuse me, the faithful go south. The unfaithful, the idolaters, move migrate to some extent. To the north, and uh, uh, to give you some perspective of this, um, and we see this—it's uh, all through the scripture, by the way—but uh, um, this this false religious system that Jeroboam has engineered and, and implemented here had a dual effect on the nation. First of all, the, the, there's this immigration pattern. Uh, the immigrants were, by the way, there were significant number at the time of the division of Judah. Uh, it was a, at the time of the division. It was only able, you recall, to mobilize 180,000 men. But we're going to discover 18 years later, they're going to enter. Judah's army is going to enter the field with 400,000 men. What's the difference? Well, some growth in population, perhaps, but also it's, a, it's it's more than a doubling. So it tells you that the migration was consequential. And uh, now a second impact of this false worship um, was on the character of the northern kingdom. Because it's going to degenerate. The paganism is going to cause the character of the northern kingdom to degenerate. And each succeeding king is going to continue the pattern. In the south, they also degenerate not as fast. And there's an exception now and then. As we go through the south, we'll notice that there's the good guys show up every once in a while. Not so in the north. It's just a steady downward path. Uh, In the north, um, there are 19 kings that were from nine different dynasties. And only eight of the kings died a natural death. Seven were assassinated, one was a suicide, and one was killed in battle. And one died of injuries, suffered a fall, and the last king, Hosea, simply disappeared into captivity. We don't really know what happened to him. Um, The Bible says that they all, quote, did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, close quote. 
So with this kind of leadership, it's no wonder that the people themselves fall into Baal worship and all kinds of injustice and so forth. God keeps sending them prophets, but to no avail. They don't listen. Or they listen, but they don't do. By the way, while this is going on, they have material prosperity. It's not as if the northern kingdom was under a big depression or something. They had material prosperity for a while because they had strong rulers all the way up to Jeroboam II. Jeroboam II. And we're going to talk about Omri when we get there. He established the capital of Samaria, which it will go to later here. But it's interesting that the northern kingdom disappears from history and only the families of the ten tribes that moved to the south kept their identity and kept the identity of the tribes alive. And we'll see that in the New Testament as well as the Old. Let's go to verse 32. And Jeroboam ordained a feast. He's, he's continued to design this substitute religion, but he's going to imitate Yom Kippur here in a sense. Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month on the fifteenth day of the month, like unto the feast that is in Judah, and he offered upon an altar. So did he in Bethel, sacrificing of the calves that he had made, and he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. So he offered upon the altar which he had made in Bethel on the fifteenth day of the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised of his own heart and ordained a feast unto the children of Israel. He offered upon the altar burnt increase. This is he's doing it exactly one month later than Judah, but again it's the fifteenth. He's trying to build a similar kind of pattern, if you will. He's trying to create a festival that's better than Judah's in a sense. So this 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 feast is designed by Jeroboam. The feast in the south is designed by God. So there's a Obviously, meaningful difference there. So, and he personally, it's interesting, he apparently personally set up these altars, so that's important. Well, let's get on, let's get on to one of the strangest chapters in the Bible. There are people that study the Bible and they read chapter 13 and can't make head or tail of what's going on here. So be prepared for a very strange, this is the story of two prophets. Two prophets. Behold, there came a man of God. He's anonymous. We don't know his name. Behold, there came a, a, a man of God out of Judah by the word of the Lord unto Bethel. Now, understand, this prophet is coming from Judah, but he's going to minister up north at this worship center of the north called Bethel. And Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. And he cried against the altar in the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus saith the Lord, Behold, a child shall be born unto the house of David, Josiah by name. And upon thee shall he offer the priests of the high places that burn incense upon thee, and men's bones shall be burnt upon thee. This young guy is going into foreign territory, and he gives a prophecy that is three centuries early. Josiah comes 300 years later, and uh, to, for somewhere between 290 to 360, depending on different different scholars have slightly different chronologies here, and I won't get into all here. That's not, that's not material. The point is, three centuries later, there is a king by by the name of Josiah who comes and he kills the priests, and men's bones are burned on the altar. This is what this young guy is saying. How do you think Jeroboam felt about that? The king is standing there, by the way, at Bethel. It isn't just, you know, he's the king, right? And this prophet comes and nails this, right? Now he gave a sign the same day saying, This is the sign which the Lord hath spoken. Behold, the altar shall be rent, and the ashes that are upon it shall be poured out. Now this is often a pattern in Scripture. A prophet will make a prophecy from that's going way, way out there, but it'll include something locally to prove that he's really a prophet. You follow me? And so and it came to pass when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God, which had cried against the altar in Bethel, that he put forth his hand from the altar, saying, Lay hold on him. 
And his hand, which he put forth against him, dried up so that he could not pull it in again to him. In other words, not only did it wither, he couldn't retract it. That must have impressed everybody. You know? um, <laughs> so he, 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 Jeroboam the king is ordering the arrest of this prophet, <laughs> but he found out that God's authority is greater than Jeroboam's. That's the point that God is making here. And he could, he could paralyze Jeroboam and make him useless. And guess what? The altar was rent. Just like the prophet said, it's split. The altar was rent and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king answered and said unto the man of God, Entreat now the face of the Lord thy God and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me again. And the man of God besought the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him again and became as it was before. If you were Jeroboam, do you think you'd be impressed? Do you think you'd be impressed enough to change your ways? You know, in the comfort of our seats here, looking back, we say, of course, if that was me, I would have learned from that and repented. Jeroboam did not. Did not. And uh, that's, uh, you know, he acknowledged God's power and and, uh, uh, and so forth. He, has, he referred to, but it's interesting, he says, entreat now the face of the Lord thy God. Uh-oh. You see, that's, that's, that's indicting there, isn't it? That's indicting. Now, his, his, this... Uh, uh, the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh thyself, and I will give thee a reward. Now this might have been the nature of an apology for attempting arrest, or it might be a device for uh, warding off some other more, uh, you know, the, the softening the judgment that's coming, what have you. The man of God said unto the king, If thou wilt give me half thine house, I will not go in with thee. Neither will I eat bread nor drink water in this place. For so it was charged me by the word of the Lord, saying, Eat no bread nor drink water nor turn again by the same way that thou camest. In other words, he's instructed to not eat, not drink, and not go back the way he came. So far, this young man sounds like Daniel, doesn't he? I mean, that's the kind, you sort of almost can hear Daniel's style there, you know. Up yours, O king, no way, you know. So he went, so he went another way and returned not by the way that he came to Bethel. So far, so good, right? This young guy has done pretty well. He's obeyed the Lord up to this point. Now is when the story gets weird. And uh, we'll try to take it slowly so we can follow the logic here. Verse 11, Now there dwelt an old prophet in Bethel. This is a different guy, obviously. And notice where he's living. He's old, number one. Number two, he lives in Bethel. I don't know what kind of guy he is, but he's living in a strange place in Bethel. And his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. The words which he had spoken unto the king, them they told also to their father. And their father said to them, What way went he? For his sons had seen the way that the man of God went, which came from Judah. And he said to his son, Saddle me an ass. So they saddled him the ass, and he rode thereon and went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak and said unto him, Art thou the man of God that came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said unto him, Come home with me and eat bread. Well, what the king, with all his riches, could not accomplish, a believer, I'm assuming he's a believer, but obviously not having the mind of the Spirit here, what the king could not accomplish, this believer did. See, the sons of the prophet told their father about the prophecy that had been made against Jeroboam. 
And uh, so, acting on their report, he went after him here and uh, come home with me and eat bread. And the young man said, uh, I may not return with thee, nor go in with thee, neither will I eat bread, nor drink water with thee in this place. For it was said to me, By the word of the Lord, thou shalt eat no bread, nor drink water here, nor turn again to go by the way that thou camest. A repeat of what he told the king. He's telling the prophet. But notice what the prophet says, verse 18. He said unto him, I am a prophet also, as thou art. And an angel spake unto me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with thee into thine house, that he may eat bread and drink water. But there's a very key phrase here. But he lied unto him. So this old prophet lied to him. In fact, uh, he didn't instead of just saying the Lord spake to me, he uses this strange thing. You know, uh, uh, he sort of equivocates here, and the angel spake unto me by the word of the Lord, and so forth, trying to perhaps create more authority here or something. And uh, the angel, the messenger, which means messenger, by the way, was no, none other than his own sons. We can only surmise that this guy is motivated by his own self-interest. He wanted to curry finger, uh, favor with the king uh, because uh, you know, this, this is a very impolitic kind of uh, announcement by the young man. And so by hastening after the prophet from Judah and by deceiving him and giving him an invitation, uh, he might try to prove that, he'd been a, that he's an imposter. He's trying to break the, the, the credibility of, of, this, of this young man, apparently. And, uh, you know, there is, there is a practical lesson here, because, well, let's, let's get and see what happens as a result of this. He cried unto the man of God that came up from Judah, saying, Thus saith the Lord, for as much as thou hast disobeyed the mouth of the Lord, thou hast not kept the commandment which the Lord thy God commanded thee, but camest back and hast eaten bread and drink water in this place of which the Lord did say to thee, Eat no bread and drink no water. Thy carcass shall not come unto the sepulcher of thy fathers. Now this is kind of strange. See, the old man who deceived him, Still is hearing from the Lord. By the way, I hope I did. Maybe I missed a key verse here. He lied to him, so he went back with him and did eat bread in his house and drank water. So the young man believes this guy, goes back and and uh, eats bread and and drank water and so forth. He came past and sat at the table. That the word of the Lord came unto the prophet that brought him back. The old man is hearing now from the from the Lord, and that strikes us as strange. But that happens. In a number of places, uh, there are prophets who sinned that the Lord still speaks to. Jonah and Elijah being examples in their in their career. But thou camest back, and, he is, and because uh, 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 he cried on the man of God that came from Judah, saying, Thus saith the Lord. Now this is straight from the Lord through the old prophet. For as much as thou hast disobeyed the mouth of the Lord, and hast not kept the commandment which the Lord thy God commanded thee, but camest back and has eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which the Lord did say unto thee, Eat no bread and drink no water. Thy carcass shall not come unto the sepulcher of thy fathers. That is a real blow to that culture. That you're not only going to die, but you're not, you're, you are not going to be buried with your fathers. That that is uh, uh, intended to to uh, to uh, you know uh, upset him. And uh, so the old man is announcing the fate of the younger prophet right then and there because the young prophet had disobeyed the Lord's command. So he won't be given an honorable burial. Now to many, to us at first this seems awfully unfair. The young guy did pretty well. And this old man is the guy that caused him to stumble. And God communicates through the old man the young man's um, destiny and uh, for, for his, because of his disobedience. But part of the, our inability to fully appreciate this is we fail to understand the importance that God put upon the young man's mission. 
Because that announcement to Jeroboam was not just for Jeroboam, it was for the nation. And and uh, it was essential when on assignment for the Lord that we uh, perform it faithfully. There are implications there that are that are uh, deeper than may be on the service. There are a lot of examples of this in Scripture. Moses, you may recall, at one time at the rock, he, he struck the rock with his stain and, and the water came and that was fine. Many years later, he's again without water. And again, God says, you know, speak to the rock and it'll give you water. And Moses goes there and, and angrily hits the rock. You know, you, you and I think, gee, that's kind of trivial. I mean, God calls Moses, I, you know, I'm not mad at them. You let him think I'm mad at you. I'm mad at them. And because of that, you're not going to enter the promised land. What? Moses spent 40 years in Egypt and 40 years in the backside of the desert and then 40 years wandering the wilderness with one dream to enter the, 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 the promised land. God says, you'll see it from the hill, but you're not going to be able to go because you didn't do what I told you to. God means what he says and says what he means and expects obedience. The implications of that, he didn't tell him to strike the rock, he said speak to the rock. It turns out that if he'd done what God says, it would have been a model of the first and second coming of Christ in some ways that are... Uh, We'll get into here. Point is, God may have purposes that are profound, and we shouldn't second guess the significance of that and compromise them. We should do God means what He says and, and, and says what He means. And uh, this young man did fine, but God told him not to eat and so forth, and He allowed this prophet to shift him off his mission. And that's one of the that's one of the disturbing. There's lots of lessons here. You can you can actually make a list of twenty things that you learned from this chapter about prophets, but one of the main things that uh, points I'd like to make is that the advice of other men, even if they're Christian friends, should not be substituted for the clear call of the Lord. And uh, the Scripture says, "Many counselors wisdom," and we need to listen to that. But when the God called you, and you know what God wants you to do, that should supersede. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Nussler, teaching through the book of 1 Kings. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.